great songs today to lead us into our texts. Again, 2 Samuel chapters 22 and 23. We're actually coming to the end of the story of David. Of course, the story will go on through the Psalms and through his lineage and ultimately through Jesus Christ. But his story, as we've been looking at it in these books, is coming to an end. We're going to wrap it up actually next week, which is going to bring to a close three years of looking at First and Second Samuel over certain seasons of the years. But this is the third year we've been studying these books, and it comes to a close next week. Now, as you're turning in your Bible to those chapters, I remind you that those of you who have known me a long time or for a good portion of my life have known that I've always been rather large. (laughs) And as a kid, I was rather large even for my age. And when I was born even, I was already big. I was just a hair under 10 pounds when I was born. And my size came in handy when I was a kid, of course, in sports, in football, in baseball. I was hard to move on the offensive line, and I could hit a baseball pretty far. And my size also came in handy on the playground. Of course, nobody picked on me or challenged me because I was just naturally big. But my dad always told me that no matter how big you are, no matter how strong you are, there's always somebody who's going to be bigger, faster, and stronger than you. If you're the biggest guy and the strongest guy on the offensive line, there will be a stronger guy on the defensive line, and you need to be ready for him. And if you can hit the ball really, really far, it's only a matter of time before you come up against somebody who can hit it even further. Now, in chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Samuel, we read about people who are bigger and stronger and faster than everybody else, and how David relied on them to help him as king, and how they brought him the success and prosperity that he and Israel enjoyed. Again, in chapter 23, we read about David's mighty men, strong, adept men who served David and accomplished great things on the battlefield. They could swing the sword the hardest, they could thrust the spear the fastest, and they had the best strategy, and they showed the most courage. There were more than 30 of them, as I mentioned just a moment ago, and they were somewhat tiered as to their bravery and accomplishments. There were those top three men who were the strongest, fastest, and bravest, and then there were 30 beneath them who were also set out among the rest. But they weren't those top three. But again, even in those 30, we read about kind of a ranking system. I mentioned earlier Benaiah. He's one of the top men of those 30. And so he becomes David's personal bodyguard and he leads, uh, he's the captain of the bodyguard. But there's always somebody bigger, faster, and stronger, isn't there? Even bigger, stronger, and faster than David's mighty men. And that's what we read about in chapter 22. So if you turn to chapter 22 now, Chapter 23 is all about David's mighty men, and chapter 22 is all about David's mighty God. And if you think about it, as I was studying this, I think whoever wrote 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, put these chapters right next to each other for a reason. You have this chapter extolling the greatness of God, and then you have this chapter extolling the greatness and the courage and bravery and strength of man, And I think those two chapters are there right next to each other for you to see the stark contrast. (laughs) This is the best man can do, and this is the best God can do, which is limitless. And to see just how stark that contrast is, and for us as readers to be encouraged never to put our trust in men, but only in God. 
So we start with chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. And actually, you may or may not know that this chapter, 22, is actually the same as Psalm 18. There's the same words. Although Psalm 18 is edited a bit to make it go better with Hebrew music because, of course, the Psalms were Hebrew, uh, Israel's hymn book. Um, but they're the same chapters, but we're looking at chapter 22 of 2 Samuel today. So start with verse 1. It says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on that day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So here we have a description of David calling out to God precisely because of who God has proven himself to be, a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, a refuge, a shield, a horn of salvation, a stronghold, and a savior. That's quite a list of attributes, I would say. And you can see why, if that's who God is, it makes sense that David is going to call out to him in his time of need. But why is David in need? Why is he calling out to God in the first place? Well, look at verse 5. He says, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Now, of course, if you've been with us Throughout the last three years here at Riverview, and you've seen all the different scrapes that David has gotten himself into, you know that he has been on the wrong side of a sword many, many times, and numerous people have sought his life. He's had plenty of times where the waves of death have encompassed him, so we assume he's speaking cumulatively here of all of his life experiences. But the point is that he's in trouble to the point of death, and he calls out to God, and what does he say in that last verse, verse 6? He says, and God heard my cry. Now what does God do when he hears one of his children crying out to him? How does he respond when his children are in trouble? Listen to this, these next verses. I got to confess to you, this is so cool to me. As I, got, as I studied this passage a few weeks ago, I got so excited reading this next, these next verses because it describes how David has called out to God and now we see how God answers. Verse 8, listen. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He, bow he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. 
for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What does God do when he hears the cries of his children? Folks, he moves heaven and earth to deliver them. I'm sorry, I can't help but get excited about that. David calls for aid, right? And God answers by moving heaven and earth. Read those verses again. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. That's the picture there. God moves heaven and earth to come to the aid of his children who are calling out to him. David calls out for aid and God says, David, I hear you. You tell your enemies, I'm coming and I'm bringing all of heaven with me. Now, how much of this is a literal description of how God delivered David and how much of it is poetic license? Who knows? The point is that God did anything he needed to do in order to deliver David. And David's enemies don't stand a chance because there is no one bigger, stronger, or faster than David's God. Look again at verse 18. He says, He rescued me from my strong enemy. In other words, someone stronger than me, David says. My strong enemy was coming for me. Someone bigger, stronger, and faster than me. But I called out to God, and he rescued me from that strong enemy because God is bigger, stronger, and faster than my strong enemy. Verse 19, he says, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support, and they can't overcome him. I have a day of calamity, my God does not and they can't overcome him. Now, again, why does that get me so excited? Because that's how God responds when his children call out to him. Not just for David, but also for me and for you. Remember that principle, there's always someone who's bigger and stronger and faster, and that's absolutely true when it comes to yours and my enemies. No matter how strong you are, you can still be beaten down. No matter how you know, courageous you are, you can still be beaten down and run away. You can be crushed to the point that the waves of death have encompassed you and the torrents of destruction assail you. But no one is stronger than our God. As we sang just a minute ago, what can stand against us? If God is for us, then what can stand against us? There's no one bigger, stronger, or faster than David's God than my God. But then a question arises, why does God hear David's cries and then move heaven and earth to help him? Why is God inclined to do that, to be this big and strong and fast God, to overcome the enemies of his children? Why does God do that for them? Look at verse 21. David says, the Lord dealt with me. In other words, he went and came to my aid. He dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. So David says, that the reason God so dramatically comes to his aid is because of his righteousness, right? He's a squeaky, clean man. He's morally perfect. 
That's why God has come to his aid. Now, hopefully, again, if you've been here throughout this study, you know that is completely not true, <laughs> right? That is not true about David at all. In fact, if you turn back in your Bible, just one or two pages, you will find some place where David has failed in sin and fallen face first into a puddle of sin. And it, actually, if you turn to the next chapter, 24, you'll find another place where David falls face first into a puddle of sin. So what is this all about this? Well, the Lord came to my deliverance because of my righteousness, because of the cleanness of my hands. It cannot be true that God only comes to his aid because he's just such a stand-up guy, because that's not who David was. And that's not why God came to his aid. Rather, there are clues here that David is not talking about his own moral perfection, but that he is talking about a righteousness that is alien to himself. Not that he is perfect, but that he is forgiven. David says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. But again, David doesn't have any righteousness that would impress God. Actually, he has plenty of unrighteousness that angers God. So where is he getting this righteousness from that he says is the basis, the foundation for the reason why God would come to his aid? Where does he get that righteousness? It is given to him by God through faith. God makes him righteous, and so God delivers David on account of the righteousness that God gives to him. Again, David says, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly or departed from my God. Uh, no, you didn't keep the ways of the Lord, David, and yes, you did wickedly depart from him multiple times. But again, what David means is that God has dealt with those times and that he has not kept the ways of the Lord, that he has not kept the ways of the Lord, and the times that he has wickedly departed from God, God has dealt with those. He has settled David's account. He has atoned for his sin and has made him righteous, perfect in God's eyes. So now, as David stands before God, he has kept the way of the Lord and not departed from him. Do you see this righteousness as David is talking about? It isn't his. It's been given to him by God. He also says here, I was blameless before him. Well, he clearly wasn't blameless before God, so how can he say that he is blameless? Only if his blame was taken away by God. The point is, David didn't earn God's deliverance by being a good boy, but by being a forgiven sinner by grace through faith. That is why God moves heaven and earth to come to his aid. Not because of how good David is, but because of how good God is. And listen, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you can echo these words in your own life. The Lord will deal with you according to your righteousness. Not your good behavior, but your willingness to bring your sin to the cross and the righteousness that, you have been, that, that has been given to you by faith in Christ. That is why God will come to your aid and defend you and deliver you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good Jesus is. Can you say that about yourself? Can you say that God will come to your aid because he has settled your account? 
Can you say that God will come and deliver you on the basis of the fact that he has dealt with your sin so that you now stand before him as righteous? As a person who has not departed from him but has kept his ways? And again, I don't mean that you must be morally outstanding in order to earn God's favor. Rather, that you're confessing your sin and saying, Lord, I need someone else's righteousness because mine ain't going to cut it. So God, I need your righteousness and he will give it to you. And on that basis, he will come and move heaven and earth to come to your aid. Remember, there's always someone bigger, stronger, and faster than you. And in this case, there's always someone more righteous than you, and that's God, and you will never attain his righteousness. You can never hope to earn his favor. So admit your failings, admit your weakness, confess your sin, and in that admission and confession, you will find grace and redemption and that earth and heaven-shaking deliverance that you seek. You need to admit that you aren't big enough or strong enough, fast enough, good enough, pretty enough, wise enough, rich enough, powerful enough. And in that admission of of how human you are and your weaknesses, you will find God's perfect strength. And then this song of David's in chapter 22, it goes through the rest of the chapter. We don't have time this morning to go through the whole thing word by word, but we've touched on really kind of the main theme. God hears the cries of his children, and he responds powerfully based on the righteousness that he gives to them by faith. So let's move ahead to chapter 23 here, and it begins with the last words of David. It says that there. These are David's last words, and that's a bit, of a, uh, a bit confusing because there's still another chapter's worth of David's life in chapter 24, which we'll get to next week. But we could say that these are David's last official words. And again, the theme of these last words is that salvation comes from God alone and not from David. So look at verse 5 of chapter 23. He says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper, or for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. David didn't prosper because he was adept at being a good king, but because of the covenant that God made with him. And God never breaks a promise. All of David's success, all of his salvation, all of David's everything came from his mighty God. But then chapter 23 goes on again to give information about David's mighty men. And like we said earlier, these mighty men were those who were exceptional on the field of battle. And the author of 2 Samuel details some of the exploits of a few of those men. If you look at verse 8, it tells you about a man named Joshua, who was David's top man. He went again against 800 and came out victorious. 800 to 1, and he came away with the victory. And then verse 9, Eleazar, David's number two man, he defeated the Philistines in a resounding victory. And then you see verse 11, Shema rounded out David's top three men. He single-handedly def- defended a plot of lentils from the Philistines. And all God's people said, those must have been some good lentils, Right? I've eaten lentils before, and I don't think I would have defended them with my life, but uh, that's what he does, so they must have been some top-shelf lentils. And there were 30 others then beneath those three that all rose above the rest. You see in verse 18, the best of those 30 was Abishai. We've read about him before. 
but he stood out because he single-handedly killed 300 enemies. And then verse 20, Benaiah, who I've mentioned a couple of times, was also at the top of those 30 men for a battle he had against the Moabites and for defeating a very large Egyptian warrior and for going one-on-one with a lion in a pit and coming out the victor. And then in the rest of these verses, you have the names of the rest of David's mighty men, all of these men. Listen, didn't we say there's always somebody bigger, stronger, and faster? And these guys in chapter 23 were definitely the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest, at least of Israel. But I want you to know this. They were not the biggest and strongest and fastest of everyone because, remember, there's always going to be somebody bigger, stronger, and faster. Now look at what it says about Eleazar in chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 23, verse 10. It says, He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And I think that means that you know, he held the sword for so, for so long fighting guys that his, basically his fingers became so stiff they couldn't let go of the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to slip Uh, strip the slain. You see, Eleazar was one of David's top three men, but there were people who were bigger, stronger, and faster than Eleazar. The Philistines, for one, outnumbered him and were collectively stronger than him. He couldn't face them. He couldn't gain victory over them. But like David, Eleazar had a God who was the biggest, strongest, and fastest, and who moves heaven and earth to come to the aid of his people. Do you notice there in verse 10, who won that victory for Israel? Folks, it wasn't Eleazar, David's top, one of his top two men. It wasn't him. Who won that victory? The Lord brought about a great victory that day. That's who won the battle. It was the Lord who moves heaven and earth to come to the aid of his people. The same is true for Shema. If you look at verse 12, another of David's top three mighty men. Verse 12, it says, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And what? The Lord worked a great victory. You see this Shema guy, number three in David's top three men, he wasn't the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest. There were people out there who were bigger, stronger, and faster than Shema. But God was even bigger and even stronger and even faster than Shema's enemies. And he moved heaven and earth to come to his rescue. And I think, again, the point of these two chapters side by side is to show us who, just who is the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest. And you know what, folks? It's not David. It's not Eleazar. It's not Shema. It's not anybody in this list of mighty men. They are not the biggest, strongest, and the fastest. There is only one, and it is David's God. It is your God if you are in Christ. And so, if God is the biggest, strongest, and the fastest, there are two things that I think we should take away from these chapters. First, you should put your trust in God and not in men. Although David's mighty men were indeed mighty, their strength, of course, had its limits. They could fight valiantly on the battlefield, but they could not move heaven and earth. They could swing the sword or thrust the spear, but they couldn't send lightning like arrows. They could ride horses into battle, but not the wings of the wind. They could shout the battle cry, but could not send devouring fire 
from their mouths. They could storm the land and the sea, but not make the land and sea tremble in their anger. And any strength they even did have came from God. And folks, this is a principle that David himself knew very well. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to the words from Psalm 146, verse 3. This is David. He says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Listen, don't trust in man. Man is limited. Man dies, and so does his strength. Even the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest of us will die. We do not have ultimate power to save. Instead, David says again from Psalm 146, starting with verse 5, he says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. God is the biggest, the strongest, and the fastest. He is the creator. There is no one above him. So put not your trust in men, not even the biggest, strongest, and fastest men. Second, if God is the biggest, strongest, and fastest, and if you belong to him, folks, you need not fear your enemies because they are not bigger, stronger, and faster than God. Listen to Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. God is stronger than any weapon. His truth is greater than any lie. And never mind physical or earthly enemies or weapons, God is even stronger than death. If you think about it, that's the worst that anybody can do to you, right? Is to kill you. God is stronger even than death. We read, in, we read this earlier in the service from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory. God has, is bigger, stronger, and faster than death. God owns death. It goes on to say, oh, death, where is your victory? You don't have one. Oh, death, where is your sting? The worst that can happen to you is that someone could kill you. And God is victorious over death. What have we to be afraid of? Even death itself is powerless against our God. He's bigger, stronger, and faster even than death. This is what Paul summarizes in Romans 8.31. Again, words that we sang this morning. If God is for us, who or what, I added the or what, who or what can be against us? If God is for you, then it should reframe those people, places, and things that cause you to fear, even death. God is bigger than death. He's stronger than death. He's bigger than your enemies. He is bigger than those who would seek to hurt you or harm you. He is bigger than the cares of life that come at you sometimes mercilessly or seemingly mercilessly over and over and over again. God is God. Rest in him, not in man, not in yourself, not in any kind of program or politician or policy or anything else. God is God. Rest in him. And remember, again, the reason David could call out to that God to come to his aid, it wasn't because, oh Lord, look at all these nice things I've done, so you owe me. 
You owe me, God. I, you know, I, I've kind of balanced the scales. I did some good deeds. So, so you owe me a deliverance. Come and move heaven and earth for me, Lord. That's not why God acted for David. God only acted for David because of the righteousness that he himself gave to David. So the final question you need to think about today is do you have that righteousness? Would God come to your aid on the basis of his own righteousness? Because I've got some bad news for you. He's not coming to your aid on the basis of your righteousness because you don't have any. You need him to give you righteousness. And he will, by grace, through faith. When you come confessing your sin and believing that Jesus died to pay for those sins, he will make you a member of his family. And on that basis, you will call out to him and he will move heaven and earth to answer you. Do you belong to him? Do you have that righteousness? If you don't, I'd love to tell you and pray with you about how you can get that righteousness for yourself. It's free. It's a free gift from God to you. And if you are in Christ, remember this. This is your God. And he comes to fight for you when you call upon him. Rest in his strength. Rest in his victory. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are overcome. I am overcome by the magnitude of your power and your glory and your might. Lord, there is no enemy that is too strong for you. No challenge that you cannot overcome. No hill that you cannot climb. Lord, no victory that you cannot have for your own because you are the true and powerful God who reigns above all others. Lord, may these realities be seared into our minds and our hearts so that as we face this world with devils filled and temptations and trials around every corner, Lord, may we rest that there is in the fact that there is no one bigger, stronger, or faster than our God. No enemy can threaten us when we belong to you. God, help us to rest in that truth and find our assurance in that truth that you are who you say you are and that there is none other besides you. God, I pray for those people here who today have never come to you on the basis of your righteousness. Lord, I pray for those people who are trying to earn their way, trying to be a good boy or a good girl and earn your grace and favor. Lord, show them dramatically the futility of that attempt, of that endeavor. Lord, humble their hearts and let them come to you openly and honestly, confessing their sin, knowing that there is a good God who is ready and eager to forgive their sin, to give them that righteousness that they so long for, and Lord, that you would be proven faithful and true to the promises that you have made because you are God and not a man and you would not lie as we do. God, be glorified by our trust in you and by the victories that we obtain, not by our own might, but by your might. God, may the world see your power through us so that they might also come to believe. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.